Welcome to this episode of Dublin's Historic Sites, where I, Laura Fitzzachary, will be joined by guest hosts in discovering the townlands of South Dublin and delving into their history by looking at how the Liberties got its name, what life was like in 15th century Shankill, and how Balls Bridge transformed from a marshy village to one of the priciest parts of the country. As we go through the south side, I will shed light on place names, social history, and the area as it is today. And this month, the show will focus on the area of Milltown, our last episode of the series. For the season two finale, I thought it would be apt to follow the course of the Dodder, as an echo back to the very first episode way back in season one, episode one on Dundrum, when we focus on the slang, and incidentally, I was joined by show regular Evan McGuigan, all the way back then, who has returned for the finale for Milltown. So thank you very much for coming back. Well, thank you for again for having me. Uh, there's I kind of lost track of how many episodes I've been on at this point uh, in between, but it's it's always great to be back and very nice to be back for the finale. Well, yes, the end of season two, and the, thank you, a show regular, definitely mm-hmm. you are. But just part of the furniture. Yeah, I thought I'm. I'm even going to try and count now as, as many. But you definitely <laughs> kicked off this season, mm. and now you're ending it. And yeah, we the the initial episode, the very 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 first one was following the river course of the slang, exactly. and so I thought it'd be nice to kind of end it on another another river, a ma- a big river as well in yep. Dublin. Absolutely. What we found as well with the daughter is that it's kind of hit off nearly every single town that we've talked about throughout the two seasons. Mm. It's always there, isn't it? Oh, the daughter. Always weaving its way. Yeah, or even some tributary of it at the very least. Mm. For those of you who don't know, Evan is a colleague of mine hailing from Monaghan, a fellow historian in whose expertise lies in 20th century Irish history, but he also has a keen interest in the history of the courts and lawmakers in Ireland. In fact, he created a very well-received exhibition on this topic back in 2019, Fortunately for us, his background and interests in political history and current affairs will be yet again put to good use as we delve into the history of Milltown and a river that has been in nearly every episode of Dublin's Historic South, the Dodder. So to kick off the show then, Evan, Milltown, or as you would hear on the Lewis, Ballyon Willen, mm. is the town of the mill. So, you know, pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. In fact, there's actually 97 place names in Ireland with the name Milltown. 40 of which are in Leinster, 28 in Munster, 17 in your neck of the woods, Ulster, and 7 in Connacht. But the mill town that we are on today, of course, is Mm. is in in South South Dublin. Dublin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you always hear about the ones in Cork and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Never heard about the ones in Ulster, though, to be fair. Oh, yes, there's many. Mm. 17, to be exact. (laughs) (laughs) I have to find them now. So coming from Ranla, Milltown Road veers slightly to the right as it descends Milltown Hill, passing Geraldine Terrace on the left. It was here that you would enter the village of Milltown, situated almost on the very bed of the Dodder. The road that turns left crossing the river by Milltown Bridge and then ascends towards Dundrum. The main part of the village extended on both sides of the road from the bottom of Milltown Hill to Milltown Bridge, but the village also extended beyond the Nine Arches Viaduct, which we'll be getting to, of course, later, as far as Classens Bridge, which we'll also be getting to later. But most of the village was to the north of the Dodder, but land south of the river and around the bridge is also known as Milltown. The boundary between Dublin City and Dublin County actually runs right through the centre of the Dodder. Milltown itself is actually first mentioned in the records of the Manor of St. Sepulchre, where it states that there was a mill in Milton held by Henry Brigg in 1326, 
who paid a rent of 13 shillings for 14 acres by the daughter and the mill. A map in the Down Survey shows what appears to be a fortified tower house at Milltown, and the Silva Survey in 1654 also mentions Milltown, with an E at the end, of course. During the 18th century, there were many mills across Milltown and a considerable settlement along the banks of the river, naturally, where factory and mill workers, of course, lived. Between the 19th and 20th centuries, then, it was a proper enterprise and pretty much self-contained and self-sufficient. In fact, Patrick Salmon has done great work on the lost villages of Milton, which we'll be getting to in a little bit as well. And that's essentially what it was, really, a village back at that point, because Dublin as a city centre would have been quite a distance away, almost, by that stage. So Milltown was, as we mentioned, as a site of several mills on the River Dodder, was also the location of the meeting of the River Slang with the Dodder. And we mentioned the Slang, if you remember, Evan, mm. all the way back in the Dundrum episode. I remember well. Mm-hmm. We'll be talking about flash flooding again a bit later, too. But it is located adjacent to other suburban areas, such as Windy Arbour, Ranla, Dartry, Clonsky and Donnybrook. This is the area that we're ending season two in. They were the liberties of Dublin following the English invasion and colonisation from 1290 onwards. So that's why you have records of renters leasing the land by 1326. Mm. A mill race was taken from just above the weir, located 100 metres downstream from the Nine Arches viaduct. And as a result then, Milton is marked by the spectacular 19th century railway bridge that goes across the river, now of course adorned by the Lewis, which goes, a, which just goes across oh. that, that bridge now. This was actually part of the Harcourt Street railway line, which ran from Harcourt Street to Bray. And Evan, actually, you mentioned this on the Dockey episode you talked. That's true, actually, yeah, where they had some experimental railways, I guess, along that line. So, um, yeah, it's uh, unfortunate, I guess, that they've uh, gotten rid of it. But it's cool at the same time that they've reused it and they've got remnants of it there still to this day. Very much so. In fact, the reuse on the 30th of June 2004 was the bridge reopened for the Lewis Light Railway System, mm. which ran, which ran, of course, from Stevens Green all the way now out to Brides Glen. And we've talked about the Lewis before on the show. But this bridge and sometimes the area immediately surrounding it has become informally known as Nine Arches. The, and the original Milltown Railway Station actually opened on May 1st in 1860 and then finally closed on December 31st in 1958. So we'll be mentioning as the as the episode goes on then I know that we briefly kind of gave you a nice little summary of, of the area of Milltown there but people writing about the area itself like for example the journal.ie they do a piece called Know Your Area and back in 2018 they featured one on Milltown and noting that of course there was a starch and glue mill which is probably one of the most well-known mills in and around mill town as well as a woolen mill that was a large source of local employment and there were up to 60 or so paid workers up until 1837 at this mill according to a topological dictionary of ireland in fact as noted by patrick salmon in the early 1800s 37 of the 143 mills in county dublin were situated in and around mill town that's a lot the town of mills (laughs) absolutely lives up to his name but as the 19th century wore on many started to close But the 1888 opening of the Dublin Laundry provided a much-needed employment, and eventually it became the principal employer in the area. In 1911, 260 people were employed there, with 230 living in Milltown and the surrounding area, like Windy Arbour and, of course, Dundrum. Oh yeah, in fact, so Windy Arbour, it's of course a small suburban village in the Dundrum area of Dublin, situated between Dundrum and Milltown along the banks of the Slang River, uh, also Dundrum or Slan River. 
The name of the area was originally, in Irish, uh, Naglasson, the Greenland. This was, of course, anglicised as Glassons. The name Windy Harbour, or Sandy Harbour, was later applied, referring to a landing point on the River Slang itself. And, of course, a starch mill was formally located there. Arbour once had the meaning uh, grass plot, lawn, or garden, uh, although it is possible that the name was intended as a direct translation of glasson from Irish. Yeah, so they're probably getting the, the area like around the mill, like the way we had when we were talking about Balls Bridge and the Calico Mills, and there's a kind of a ground, like grassy area around it, which you would need for a mill. Yeah. And that's where they're probably getting the name from. But it's an interesting one. And it's mm. such a difference between the English version of the name and, and of course, the Of course, Irish. of course. And so that laundry, that old Dublin laundry, was actually closed in July of 1982 and was demolished except for a tall chimney. And the reason we mention any of this is because Milltown, as a Southside suburb, is home to a, a myriad of fee-paying schools like the likes of Gonzaga and Alexandra College. And some of the property prices are eye-watering and I don't know if it's going down anytime some soon. Some of the highest in Dublin, I'd imagine, from what I saw anyway. Very much so. In fact, in 2018, a chimney, just a chimney just alone, a chimney. Wow. sold for 136,000 euro. In fact, it was that chimney which was left after the demolition of the old Dublin laundry. Mm. As noted by Donald Buckley as well as Patrick Salmon, who was writing about the mill, but Donald Buckley noted in the independent.ie when he was writing for it back in June of 2018 when the chimney was sold, the Shanagari chimney in Dublin 6 sold for €136,000, or almost four times its guide price. So this disused chimney, which is overlooking the Lewis Bridge at Milltown, you'll see it if you're getting the Lewis over it, you'll see it if you look down just as you're going over the bridge. It was four times, as I mentioned, its guide price after a very keenly contested bidding competition started, with as many as 77 bids wanting this chimney. <laughs> The deal done on behalf of a receiver relates solely to the landlocked chimney and none of the surrounding ground, so it's just the chimney itself. Okay, right, well, I hope they're okay. whoever got it got a lot of bang for their buck then, in that I case. I don't really know what you do with it, but the, the area around it is owned by Dublin City Council. Its price equates to a number of the deals done at the time for three-bedroom houses which sold in the auction for or close to €136,000. And indeed, a number of these houses and apartments around the country sold for less than that in the same auction. <laughs> so the, the Milltown Chimney, known as the Shanagari Chimney on mm. Milltown Road, is actually home to a communication mast which generates about €13,880 in annual fees from the operators of 3Mobile. So I suppose you would make your revenue back after about 10 years, but I'm not sure how that really works. Yeah. In and around that. Yeah, I guess so. Makes sense then when you look at it that way. As I mentioned though, formerly part of the old Dublin laundry premises, the red brick chimney reaches to 94 feet and the top of it, it could offer views over some of the poshest homes, of course, as you mentioned, in Dublin 6. But the auction price, just to give you a bit of context, equates to the same price achieved by a detached house in Waterville in County Kerry in the same year. Uh, you, you could have got a three-bedroomed terrace house in Cork City, and it also exceeded a semi-detached in Kinnegad in County Westmeath, which sold for €135,000 at the time, and you got a garage on the side, so you could have got for less than the chimney. 
but no massive chimney. So. But no massive chimney. So, so yeah. they're who, lost. Who, who's the real winner? Who has, whoever this unknown bidder was. <laughs> but since the year two thousand, the population has really skyrocketed in the area of Milltown, and you have about four thousand people living there. So what's also interesting about Milltown is that it has a very strong attachment to the River Dodder, which we'll be mentioning, will be, as as you said, will be meandering itself through the rest of this episode. Effie Ball even notes a lot of stone was actually sourced at Milltown in the Dodder Valley, and one of the best limestone quarries was actually near Milltown Bridge, which was said to be carried out on the banks rising from the Dodder and from the bed of the river itself. In fact, the River Dodder actually rises in Kipur in the Dublin Mountains, and then you have all of these different brooks that tumble together at Glen the Small and form the Dodder River. Dodder actually means turbulent, but its waters have given rise to a string of habitation, starting with the village of Talla and then running right through Firhouse, Temple Oak, Rathfarnham, Dartry, Milltown, Donnybrook, Ballsbridge and Irish Town. Do some of them sound familiar? Yeah. yeah Covered most of them on the show. Might have been on some of them even. <laughs> yeah, at least three there. <laughs> I think so. The river then tells the story of a whole section of South Dublin. So as you follow the daughter, you essentially follow the story of even Dublin's historic south in a way. And its power has supplied a huge range of industries from the original mills of Milltown to paper mills and ironworks. We've mentioned them all over the course of the last two seasons, but... In fact, the story of the daughter has also piqued the interest of not just the residents in and around the area today, but actually a relative of mine, a one John Christopher Fitzakery actually published in way back in 1901, a whole series on the daughter and became known as a daughter enthusiast and a daughter historian. So who knows, maybe he'd be proud of his his ancestor. That's where you get it from, I guess. (laughs) Must be, must be. But the daughter... It, his work was called The Daughter, its history, tradition and associations. And by no means was it the first or last publication that would feature and heavily rely on The Daughter. So we'll be getting to them a little bit later on as well. Evan, so we will. He wrote his work, though, for what was called The News, which is a series yeah. of newspapers. It's pretty to the point. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the title. <laughs> and he claims that it was originally referred to as The Doher, which you know is the ancient name of The Daughter, hmm. running from Talat to Rathfarnham. And it covered everything from highway robberies in College Green to sad to the sad state of affairs of Robert Emmett on the banks of, uh, of Rathfarnham. He mentions the from Rathfarnham Bridge, you could see Dorky, Dunleary, Dublin Mountains, Balls Bridge, Rings End, all of which, again, we've touched upon across the across the episodes. However, what's also interesting is that there's actually a daughter action group. It was actually started by Kevin Dennehy, who founded it in 2011. And it was to stop the littering that was revealed after a flood on the daughter back then. Uh, That was actually incidentally the same year that the River Slang also burst its banks and flooded Ah. Dundrum Town Centre, which we mentioned way back at the start of season one. Mm. But... Enter the year 2013 and to do something about it, the very first Dodder Day was created, which was when 200 people got out one Saturday and cleaned their stretch of the river. This river community began to be formed and through local meetings and through the new tool of the internet, of course, it meant that the Dodder Day came back again and again and again. In fact, in 2014, it garnered such traction that you had everyone from the Tala Community Council to Rat Farnham Scouts to the Irish Underwater Search and Rescue Unit to mayors, councillors, all backing it and providing it with insurance or hiring trucks even trying to get rid of some of this rubbish. Right, so they've really put a lot of work into this. They must be bearing a lot of results then now ever since yeah it was actually noted by victoria white that 
the Dodder is actually one of the most preserved or best preserved city rivers in Europe and has a lot of this kind of unexploited potential. Who know that you could actually even create a linear park from source to sea. That if you really worked wow. it out and created a little bit of imagination, mm. you could really extend that Dodder Park walks and literally go from the source of it, the Cupure Mountain, right down to the sea. The whole length yeah, of the Dodder. It would be a be. great attraction in and of itself. You absolutely, know? absolutely. Now, according to the Dublin City Council, the River Dodder itself, not only is it well known, it also actually spans three main authorities. So from Dublin City Council to Dunleary Ratdown County Council and South Dublin County Council because it passes through so many territories. Discharging, of course, to the Liffey Estuary. The River Dodder's catchment then stretches from Ringsend in Dublin City, west as far as Tala, and then southwest as far as the Cupure in the Dublin Mountains, as we mentioned. So the upper portion of the catchment from the source to Old Bon and Tala includes the two Bourne Abrina reservoirs, upper and lower, and their spillways. And this section is mainly rural, while the lower catchment area is heavily developed with residential and industrial land uses. There are five main tributaries whose subcashments drain into the River Dodder. The Tallis Stream, the Owen Dower, the White Church, the Little Dargle and the Dundrum Slang, all of which are heavily urbanised streams. But as I mentioned, the River Dodder has a history of flooding and is known as being a flashy river with a quick response to rainstorms. This is due to its source being in the Dublin Mountains, which provides it with a steep gradient and periods of high rainfall. In the last century, it has overflowed its banks on numerous occasions, causing damage to adjacent properties. A number of areas have experienced river or tidal flooding within the Dodder catchment, and these flooding problems mainly cause damage to public roads and properties, also flooding parkland in the urban areas of the Dodder catchment, and result from both fluvial and tidal sources. But they're able to manage this, though, with level with river level monitors and rain gauges. The warning levels, of course, increase. Then you have your typical, you know yourself, uh, Evan, you did you did geography. So you know what I'm talking about. Green, yellow, <laughs> <Kind> orange. <laughs> Green, <Allegedly>. yellow. <laughs> You're supposed to. Green, <laughs> yellow, orange. And then, of course, red, respectively. So we haven't had a, a red warning in a little while. But mm. uh, unfortunately, never say never. Give it time. Give it time. If it gets to a yellow warning level, though, a notice is sent to the duty engineer to investigate further, and Dublin City Council has commissioned Byrne Luby to develop and implement a flood alleviation scheme for the River Dodder, from Clonsky Road Bridge to Orwell Road Bridge, including flood defence works on the Little Dargle Stream on Braemar Road. But uh, speaking of Orwell Road... Yeah, speaking of Orwell Road, I guess there's Orwell Road, which runs alongside the Dodder, but there is also Orwell park which runs just off it that is an area i think i guess it's closer to rathgar but you're still coming into the milltown area from that spot and it is one which has had quite a few famous people live on it uh, in recent uh, years decades as well it's where bram stoker for example lived for a brief period but it's also where john millington singh lived uh, at number four to be precise on orwell park his family moved there shortly after his father's death from smallpox, and although Singh was often very ill himself, his childhood was nevertheless believed to have been a happy one. Uh, he was schooled from home, and this meant that in his spare time he developed an interest in birdwatching, which he would do, usually, uh, alongside the banks of the River Dodder itself. So you mentioned the vegetation, there's obviously some uh, natural wildlife springing from that, so that's what he would do along the banks of the Dodder, and he would also do the same during his family holidays at the seaside resort of Greystones in Wicklow, and at the family estate in Glanmore. 
Uh, Singh would, of course, go on to become one of Ireland's foremost playwrights, as well as a very influential poet, writer, collector of folklore, and a key figure in the Irish literary revival. His plays included the likes of In the Shadow of the Glen, The Tinker's Wedding, and of course the most famous one, uh, The Playboy of the Western World, which provoked hostile audience reactions, uh, even riots in Dublin during its opening run at the Abbey Theatre. The theatre himself, which he had co-founded with W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory. However, his life was cut short by Hodgkin's disease and cancer, and he died at a fairly young age of 37 by 1909. But he definitely left his mark, nonetheless. Absolutely, more ways than one. And we'll be getting back a little bit more to the Dodder River and how that impacted the local area just after the break. This is Dublin South FM. So welcome back to Dublin's Historic South. I'm still here, and so is Evan. I'm still here. So just before the break, we were talking about the history of the river and how important that is in the area itself. And also, if you were wondering any more, I mean, Claire Sweeney has done great work on the rivers of Dublin. But also, if you're looking specifically for the puddle, back in June 2016, a brand new book came out and it was uh, noted by engineersardent.ie that this brand new book called The River's Daughter and Puddle, Mills, Storms, Droughts and the Public Water Supply, which is by Don McEntee and Michael Corcoran. In fact, the book itself steered away from like traditions and folklore and kind of focused specifically on on the water itself, if that makes any sense. Mm, the science, basically. The science behind it, yeah. And they yeah. actually note that by the second century AD, you know, vertical undershot water mills were already being used in Europe mm. and that water mills spread throughout Europe in the 4th and 5th centuries and they were mainly for the grinding in industry. Early Irish law dating from the 7th century noted that the rules for conducting water across neighbours' land to power a mill. So you even have it written into law from the 600s onwards. Wow, and that gives a lot of evidence for Milltown being the way it was for ages, yeah. centuries beforehand, before it was even really the village that it kind of resembles today, I guess. Now, I say it probably would have been used a lot longer than we're, than we're finding evidence for so far. Mm. But on the banks of rivers and streams, you know, you would have had water wheels, which is kind of you're trying to imagine what the area would have looked like. And every suitable water course was harnessed for its energy. In its heyday, there would have been about 7,000 mills spread across Ireland. So it's kind of unsurprising that there's so many townlands with the name Milltown dotted across the country. That would explain it, wouldn't it? In fact, actually, a one Robert Mallet put forward a proposal in 1844 to construct two reservoirs on the Dodder to ensure a continuous supply of water to the mills on the Dodder and the Poddle. This scheme was actually never constructed, as the mill owners would not contribute to its cost. At the time, Mallet identified 28 major mills on the Dodder and Poddle, and in addition, four mills in Rathfarnham were also noted. The Owendoa River, which flows into the Dodder at Ratfarnham, had 22 mills. The Slang River, flowing into the Dodder at Milltown, supported another six mills. And there were 60 mills in total, all described in detail in that book from 1844. Other mills are mentioned whose references were found in texts and ancient maps. The Dodder's role in supplying water to Dublin in the 13th century and to Rathmines in the 19th century is also explained, and the Poddle was also known as a city watercourse, because it was certainly the most notable of the watercourses associated with the Dodder River, and we very much mentioned that when we were talking about the Liberties, for example, even when we were talking about Dublin 2, part 1 and part 2, actually. Water, the Dodder, the Poddle, play such a major role in the social and economic growth of the city, supplying the city of Dublin with water by proxy from 1244 until 1778. 
the Rona Marina reservoirs, which we mentioned earlier, which are more properly known as the Glenismal reservoirs, were completed in 1886, and their unique role in water supply, Miller's compensation rights, and flood control are essential feature of the book that was, of course, written by McEntee and Corcoran. So if you want to know more about Victorian engineers and how they got water all around the city, I would definitely advise you to go and get stuck into this book. But as we also mentioned as well, Evan, the Dodder is a flashy river with a long history of flooding. Mm, absolutely. So Some in, more recent than others, I guess. Absolutely. And the book itself actually even notes some of those major rainstorms and floods from about 1670 up until the present day. With anecdotes, of course, that even in the early 18th century, there were fords on the Lower Dodder at Milltown, Donnybrook, Baldbridge and Ringsend. These crossings were always hazardous and were virtually impossible to negotiate when the river was in spate, which resulted in a lot of drowning tragedies as well, unfortunately. Adjacent to where the Milltown Bridge now crosses the Dodder, there was in the 18th century a ford that people use as a shortcut to avoid going round by the somewhat inconvenient Packhorse Bridge. We'll be getting to bridges a bit later, of course, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about rivers. But the Milltown crossing was notoriously deceptive and dangerous, and you even have several fatalities occurring around there. And what's even more interesting, major floods on the Poddle and Slang were recorded, which we noted back in the Dundrum episode. People already knew that the Slang was breaking their bangs before Dundrum Town Centre was ever built. The 37 bridges crossing the Dodder are even mentioned in the book, together with a history of the more important bridges. We won't be talking about all 37, of course, a bit later, but we'll definitely be mentioning a few. Back in some people's memories in 1986, during Hurricane Charlie, the dams at Bornebrina were within inches of actually being overtopped. The rain was that bad. As these dams are of the earth and embankment type, a breach of this would have either led to major property damage and almost certain loss of life downstream, and they pose a serious threat to the population who were resident in the lower reaches of the River Dodder in urban Dublin. So it got quite dangerous in 1986. To make sure that this would never occur again in the future, Dublin City Council constructed new spillways in Bornebrina to cater for the probable maximum flood from a 1 in 10,000 year storm. But of course, it's not the only publication that's associated with the daughter, because Paul Clements, who wrote for the Irish Times back just there last year in 2021, also noted that there was a spate of brand new publications coming out on the daughter or the area in and around it. Just in the last year or so, what had come out was On the Banks of the Daughter which was by O'Brien's Press by Ged Walsh, which explored the social and business developments of Rathgar and Churchtown. You also would have had From the Grand Canal to the Daughter, which was by Beatrice Doran, which covered the people who lived in and around the area. A lot of illustrious people living in them. And so, for example, you mentioned J.M. Singh there earlier on as well, Evan. But the Daughter plays a considerable role in Dublin Moving East, which just came out by Michael Brannigan. And it was concentrating on the period from 1708 to 1844, at a time when the city of Dublin almost doubled in size and the author discusses what triggered the expansion then eastwards. This turbulent river was absolutely vital to the capital, providing water and power from Temple Oak and Raffarnham right down to the sea and the walling of the Dodder helped with flooding and tidying up the area for port activities. The corporation, the Dublin Corporation, saw the potential of the land that could be reclaimed and the additional revenue that it would produce, hence why reclaiming the land they can build more houses. Occasionally nature altered the course of the river but it was also interfered with by man when it was diverted at Temple Oak all the way back in 1689. This would actually prove to be a detriment to the people in and around that area for the next 120 years. But naturally of course water mills seemed to be what flourished along the riverbank and the daughter was a reliable being a turbulent one free energy source to operate them. So as also noted by Beatrice Dornan's From the Grand Canal to the Dodder, many illustrious people then would have lived up right next to this river. And in the 67 lives that she does cover in detail, 
It also includes those in the Bagatonia set, which had been well celebrated. The forgotten names, of course, which fascinate the likes of Agnes Burnell, for example, who was a cabaret artist and musician who recorded with Tom Waits, Elvis Costello and Marion Faithful. But this isn't the only link to music and the daughter now, is it? Yeah, that's true. So you've got a pretty big link in regards to the Chieftains. They're obviously one of the most important traditional Irish and folk bands to have emerged from the island over the last number of decades. Uh, They've helped not only to revive traditional Irish music in a popular sense, but they've also helped to bring it to a worldwide audience as well. And they, of course, originate from Dublin, and over their long career, they've broken America, collaborated with a vast number of popular artists, and played their music to the likes of the Pope and the Queen. One perhaps little-known element, though, of their career is where the band... Uh, and where the group was actually formed. Uh, It is alleged that the story of the Chieftains actually began in Milltown itself, specifically in a property known as The Stores. So this property, which was just built over 160 years ago only, The Stores, it's a distinctive two-storey corner building. It's based on the Dundrum Road at Milltown Bridge, and it's considered to be one of the best-known and oldest buildings in the area. According to the Irish Times, was at some point in the 1960s when the property was sold off by Dublin Laundry, who we'd mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. In fact, that company's tall and beautifully refurbished chimney, of course, still exists near the Lewis Track. At the time, it was bought by the musician Paddy Maloney and his wife Rita, who were already living there because of the grocer's shop. Uh, was in fact Rita's family home located there. It had been run as a general store by her grandfather and his father before him, and according to Rita, it was in the back parlour that the Chieftains were actually formed, a band which Paddy himself would play a lead role in up until his passing late last year. Uh, I guess one point that's worth mentioning, though, is of course when you look back at the store's building, it still even looks from the outside. It has that look and feeling of a country grocery store, even though it's a residential property now. It's a bit of a reminder then that only a couple of generations ago, the whole Milltown area really was essentially a country village. Oh, indeed, absolutely. And what you also find then, of course, is that you have this transformation from a farmland or a farming village to a suburban society. Mm. And that was actually really outlined in yet again another publication that came out last year, uh, The Local History of Ballantyre County Dublin, which was edited by Sean McGee. A beautiful book. It's full of the colour of the area, beautiful photographs as well. But it also talks about the boundary walls, what was remaining of those walls, and exploring various springs and wells in around the area near the daughter. And streams such as the Ticknock and the Little Dargle, known as Riverlets, ran to the mill in Dundrum, and um, both of which, of course, would flow into the Dodder as well. And then, of course, there was also, just moving away from the river slightly, another publication that came out, which was called Don't Shoot the Copy Boy, which is by John Kelly, who wrote it from the mid-1970s when he started work as a 15-year-old copy boy in the sports department of the Irish Times. He was earning £17 a week back then, and his memoir is of what became a job for life. So, of course, he would have worked then extensively alongside sports reporters and sub-editors, amongst illustrious names, the likes of Ned Van Esbeck, who was a rugby fanatic, and then Paddy Downey, who was the authority on the work of Patrick Kavanagh, but also Gaelic Games, and the sharp-witted dub and out-and-out rogue Peter Byrne, who was involved, of course, in, re- in reporting football, athletics, and court jester. But, of course, 
the link then between the daughter Milltown and that area and sport is also something that we will be talking about and we'll be getting to that just after the break. Broadcasting from the Dumdrum Town Centre, this is Dublin South FM. So welcome back to Dublin Historic South. I'm still here and so is Evan. And just before the break, we were briefly mentioning some publications that came out about the daughter. And of course, we couldn't talk about Milltown and the daughter and the area itself without mentioning a very famous football club. True, yeah, um, because the main soccer club associated with Milltown also happens to be perhaps the most successful club, football club, in Ireland. Uh, and that is Shamrock Rovers FC. Uh, now, some younger listeners may think, wait a minute, they're based out in Tala, mm-hmm. right? What have they got to do with Milltown? Well, they actually have a lot because Shamrock Rovers were originally founded in Ringsend, just at the beginning of the 20th century, just like Shelburne, actually, uh, who we discussed in the Ringsend episode. And just like Shelburne FC, they actually ended up moving stadium from the area to a new location. And the new home ended up being, for Shamrock Rovers, Glenmalure Park, a football stadium smack bang in the middle of Milltown itself. So Rovers, they secured a long-term lease of land from the Jesuit order, who were based in the area. The club's ground there was largely built by the supporters themselves, who constructed the main stand and banked the areas on the other three sides. It was officially opened on Sunday the 19th of September in 1926, with a friendly game against Belfast Celtic in front of a crowd of 18,000. Bob Fulham, He actually had the honour of scoring Rovers' first ever goal in the ground. And then, moving forward to the 1930s, that's when the Cunningham family took over the club. So the stadium was named Glenmalure Park in honour of the Cunningham's ancestral home in Glenmalure Valley. That's in the Wicklow Mountains. Mm -hmm. The Cunninghams completed the ground by terracing the remainder of the ground and erecting a roof over the terrace opposite the main stand. Uh, And this allowed for a capacity of about 20,000 supporters, although the record crowd registered uh, for a single game allegedly topped 28,000. This was against Waterford, uh, of all teams, in (laughs) 1968. It was believed that crowds bigger than this, though, often attended, and this was probably due to the lack of interest, I guess, in health and safety (laughs) standards back then. But (laughs) uh, yeah, probably. But given the lack of official recordings, it's impossible to tell for sure. Mm -hmm. Glen Malure Park would remain Shamrock Rover's home until 1987, when in circumstances that would prove to be controversial, uh, the grounds were sold to property developers by the club's directors the Kilcoyne brothers and the club then made the move to Tolka Park in Drumcondra. The Kilcoynes had bought the club in 1972 and were initially applauded actually for digging deep into their pockets to lay a superb pitch surface at the grounds and they even harboured plans to redevelop the whole park into a 50,000 seater stadium. However, Dwindling attendances led to the owners to lose faith in the Milltown project, and in April of 1987, it was announced that a move to Tolka Park was on the cards. 
According to Paul Doolin, a lifelong fan who actually helped to write the book on rovers, it's called The Hoops, A History of Shamrock Rovers, there had been no communication from the owners of rovers about the proposal that led the team to relocate to Tolka Park, and the sense of anger and betrayal amongst the supporters at the time was, according to him, palpable. So this frustration led to the formation of the Keep Rovers at Milltown campaign, or CRAM for short. Uh, Very good. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's to the point, I mm -hmm. guess. Their protests uh, actually came to a head on the day of the final Rovers match to be played at Milltown, which was an FAI Cup semi-final against Sligo Rovers on the 12th of April of 1987, shortly after the announcement. The game was played out uh, to a one-all draw, but it's best remembered today for the half-time pitch invasion of Shamrock Rovers fans, some of whom carried banners with slogans including F. Tolka and the question, Will Greed Kill the Hoops? So a journalist at the game noted how hundreds of fans converged onto the pitch at halftime and voiced their opposition to the proposed move. Uh, the second half was delayed by 10 minutes, and at one stage the Rovers fans were actually joined by the Sligo supporters in front of the grandstand, and a large force of Gardaí present uh, chose not to interfere with the protesters, and it was actually left to the Shamrock Rovers player-manager, Dermot Keeley, to persuade them to leave the pitch. When Rovers moved to Tolka Park in the following season, many supporters ended up boycotting the games there, or in some cases they actually placed a picket on the games, which effectively bankrupted the club owners. Cram collected money to make an attempt to purchase Glenmalore Glen Park, but they could not match the offer of a property developer to whom the Kilcoins eventually sold the site. And after a lengthy appeal process, uh, Glenmalore Park was eventually demolished in the summer of 1990, and an apartment complex was built there on the site. It's now marked actually by a permanent memorial, and that was erected by Shamrock Rovers supporters at Glenmalure Square on the 21st of May in 1998. Uh, the club would end up moving to play in different stadiums across the city over the course of the next couple of years before eventually settling down in their current home of Tala. And in fact, there is even a road sign there from Shamrock Ro Rovers Old Stadium in Milltown now on the wall of the new stadium there. But fans who are old enough continue to remember Milltown as a great venue with an almost carpet-like playing surface and a fantastic atmosphere when there was a good crowd in place. Indeed, uh, one recent example became news back in August of last year when a Rovers fan by the name of Mick Kearns decided to spend some time during the pandemic lockdown uh, to create a scale model reconstruction of Glenmalure Park. So this model was constructed by him in the early months of 2021 and it's now set to actually go on display at Tala Stadium itself very, very soon. And so it should. That's absolutely fascinating. And I think what's interesting as well is that you have it in an area that's that's so industrious 
you're going to have a big turnover, I suppose, of buildings. You're going to have buildings that mm. are getting demolished to make room for the next building, for more updated buildings, for more renovations. And we haven't really seen that kind of level of constant deconstruction, reconstruction, demolition, rebuild since maybe the Sackert episode, for example. And I suppose then it really wouldn't be a finale episode of Dublin Stark South if I didn't mention at least one or two big houses, which of course no longer exist or have been destroyed or have been completely renovated and were even renovated in the time when they were at their peak I suppose so we're talking 18th into 19th century for example Patrick Salmon in his work The Lost Village of Milltown notes Geraldine House it was a unique early 18th century panelled house so it would have been unlike a lot of the big houses around the area and it was a large five bay house on the hill just before the village which was actually severely altered and renovated in the 19th century itself but was a subject of a report in the late 19th century Again, I suppose, as you would say, some public outrage. The article was entitled Extraordinary Scene at Milltown, Sympathy with Venerable Lady. And what it was was that the house itself was actually owned by a Lady Jane Fitzgerald, who intended to leave the property to one of two ladies living there. Lady Fitzgerald died, the house was then offered for sale, and the two ladies, their furniture and all their belongings were put out on the side of the road on a cold winter's day. The house was sold to a Mr Wilmer who lived at a cottage behind the house and the following describes the villagers' reaction to the dispossession of the intended owner. The whole village rose up in arms against the eviction of the venerable old lady and gathering in front of the house began such a bombardment with every conceivable kind of missile that the bailiffs were soon in a state of terror lying inside on the floor. Daybreak saw their flight and the lady regained, unfortunately, temporarily, her house. Geraldine House survived until 1984 when it was finally demolished. So the ladies did get back in for a while after being trussed out on the side of the road. But you can imagine it caused an absolute ruckus at the same time. Another one of those big houses, I'm just going to mention a couple because uh, we'd be there all day with the event that are in Milltown, was Elmfield House, which is also known as Elm House and that was built by the Earls of Milltown. Confusingly though, it was also known as La Touche House and then renamed Elm Hall in the 1870s. But at the time of the first Griffiths valuation, the house and its eight acres were occupied by a Miss Charlotte Hunt, who died there age 83 in 1874. So the Earls of Milltown, of course, owning some area in and around of Milltown. Mm. But uh, a lot of these big houses would have been owned by your, your aristocratic gentlemen. It wasn't just solely made up of industry and then also then smaller worker houses. So... We're really painting a picture of the area that Milltown was, of course, going to be. A lot of these big houses were actually torn down, like the likes of Marble Hall in 1962. Because by the 60s, and we kind of briefly mentioned that earlier, when housing became a real issue, particularly to try and house the workers, and because the city of Dublin was growing and growing and growing, you have this eastward, as we mentioned there, southeast away from the city. So Dublin 6, as we know today, becoming quite extensively residential. So they had to have smaller houses built. So they were knocking down those big houses like your likes of Elmfield and your likes of Marble Hall to create space for smaller houses. So speaking of then creating new houses, by the 1950s, what you had was the kind of the general clearing of what is now the main street in Milltown. And in order to do that, they weren't just knocking down big houses. They were also clearing orchards and creating space there. They were getting rid of some shops down along the main street. 
And of course, that also meant losing the likes of other amenities like public houses. So of course, what's interesting there is that you have this regeneration of an area in 1955. That's and true. Yeah, I think like, for example, I think that's the reason why Patrick Salmon's book on the lost village of Milton is quite interesting. The, the amount of buildings and construction that was created in the area, even, I know you're talking about the 20th century there, but even preceding that uh, was quite extensive. There was a report actually created in September of 1955, which noted that one of the oldest villages in the vicinity of Dublin, where local residents can trace ancestry back for centuries, will shortly disappear. Dot, dot, dot. The 17th century public house, the Emmet Arms, is open for business still, but it too will have to go soon. The article concluded that when the corporation's programme has been completed, the old village will have virtually disappeared. The narrow road, which was the scene of several traffic accidents in recent times, will have been widened to accommodate the increased flow of traffic and the banks of the Dodder will have been converted into parkland. But of course, some pubs did make it. Not all of them got destroyed and, you know, cleared away in that regeneration of the area. That's very, very true. There's some of them that have stood the test of time pretty Mm -hmm. much through some of the great traumas, actually, of Irish history and... Perhaps the main example of that, in Milltown anyway, is the Dropping Well, which, according to its own website anyway, is one of Dublin's most historic pubs, and it owes its origins to the Great Famine, and was first licensed as a community morgue back in Black 47. Uh, The Great Famine, having ravaged the countryside since 1845, of course, reached epidemic proportions in Dublin by the early summer, in 1847. Dublin by then was a city beleaguered by dysentery, typhus, dropsy and fever, and many who suffered were Dublin people themselves, but there was also others who had arrived into the city from the rest of the country. They were searching for food, employment, shelter, with the ultimate aim being to seek a passageway away from Ireland as famine emigrants across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, for example. In terms of Milltown itself, starving people regularly communed along the riverbanks of the Dodder, with many falling and perishing by its waterside. Uh, The presence of decaying and disease-ridden bodies became a great problem for the authorities who needed somewhere to keep the bodies of these unfortunate people, with the hope of trying to identify them before they were buried in mass famine graves. Which is where, believe it or not, the Dropping Well pub comes in. John Ho and his wife uh, actually approached the authorities applying for a liquor licence and offered to set up a community morgue stationed on the banks of the River Daughter, just at Classen's Bridge. Mm-hmm. Their request was immediately granted and the Dropping Well pub opened its doors up to the public in July of 1847 pretty much right at the height of the Great Famine itself. However, the normal business of a public house was the furthest from John Ho's mind, and his chief concern lay in dealing with the hundreds of ghostly-type figures who were drifting down the Dodder Valley itself. And in the cause of helping the afflicted, John Ho himself became contaminated, and despite the presence of medical attention, died of complications in 1850. Uh, His wife continued the family business for a time before passing the premises on to a relative, one Miss Williams, in 1855. 
One final thing to mention, though, is at the turn of the century, and with the morgue now long gone, it was one P.H. Marr who bought the premises, and a bit like Dan Donnelly, who we mentioned in a previous episode, mm -hmm. Marr had previously been a boxer in his younger years and harboured a deep fondness for sport generally. Uh, so having acquired the premises in 1908, he completed a lavish post-Victorian renovation which significantly upgraded the premises, and it's even believed that he, at one point, took it upon himself to create a new attraction within the pub, a specifically erected boxing ring, where he would take on any aspiring pugilist who wanted a fight. It can still be visited today, the Dropping Well pub, of course, but don't expect to see a boxing ring in there anymore. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. But you never know. You never say never. <laughs> nope, not these days, anyway. <laughs> but as you mentioned there very briefly that uh, the where the where the pub is situated you would be able to look down the Dodder Valley and that of course uh, suggests that there was water nearby and how you would cross in and out of this marker this area between the D Dublin city and Dublin county and we'll be getting a bit about how you actually cross and navigate through the area and across the river in the form of the bridges just after the break. Welcome back to Dublin's Historic South I'm still here and so is Evan. Indeed, I am. Thank you. And <laughs> uh, just before the break, we, in a roundabout way, <laughs> kind of me meandered into the idea of actually crossing and navigating around the Dodger in and around, of course, the area of Milltown. Because in such an area that is quite industrious, that had been torn down, redemolished, uh, and then, of course, there would have been a lot of movement, there would have been a lot of people moving through the area. How are they getting across? And as we mentioned earlier, there was 37 bridges across the Dodder at any one point in time several of which of course would have been located in Milltown and one of the most odd ones I suppose would be the Packhorse Bridge which was noted by Patrick Salmon as a two arch bridge spanning the Dodder. There is an absence of any account of expenditure though in the records which were inherited by the corporation or the Dublin City Council on actually building said bridge so it's a one Rob Goodbody who concluded that it was probably a private bridge actually built by the Millers of Milltown in the second half of the 17th century. And then it was actually in the late 18th century then that we have another quite famous or well-known bridge in Milltown. Indeed, yeah, this is the Classens Bridge, one of the crossings over the Dodder at Milltown, and it's named so after one John Classen, who in the 18th century started his own milling business at a site beside the river. Its location is roughly where the Dropping Well pub is now today, so in order to aid transport to and from his business, he later built a bridge across the river using granite stone sourced from the Dodder itself. And of course, the bridge still bears his name to this day. Uh, in 1928, though, the bridge was widened. But if you are around the pedestrian area, you, you can walk down to the riverbank and see, to this day, parts of the old bridge underneath. So the Classen Bridge is essentially a bridge on top of another bridge, if you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's actually a plaque there which denotes that which I'll be getting to. But Classen himself, actually, he also built the weir known as Darchy Weir, which is just above the bridge in 1760. And then during the 18th century, there was two corn mills, an iron mill and a paper factory and a sawmill all owned by one James Classen, so owning a significant amount of the industry in the area. 
as you mentioned, a plaque on the bridge notes that it was widened, as you said, in 1928. In fact, the bridge had actually been destroyed in 1921, when after multiple IRA attempts to blow it up meant that it had finally collapsed into the river. For several years then, it was not possible to actually cross the river here until the bridge was repaired and, as you said, widened in 1928. And as you said, you can see the old part mm. On, mm. under that today. There's actually a third bridge, which is quite an elegant new bridge at Milltown. And it has a single arch, which is faced with a granite ashlar. Dublin City Council started the 1816 build to a cost of £1,662, which is a lot back then. And it was built and finished the following year. Plans to widen that bridge, though, were actually thought about in the 1950s, but they weren't carried out until the mid-1970s. So a little bit of a while until the bridges were actually probably accommodated to suit the needs of the people back then. But uh, some things kind of never change. Good things come to those who wait, I guess. <laughs> a, few cent- a few centuries in this case. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But of course, the most famous bridge, you would argue, in Milltown, uh, quite near that lovely chimney stack, is the Nine Arches Bridge. And we mentioned this right at the very start of the episode. The area in and around the bridge itself is kind of informally named. And it's now, of course, part of the Green Lewis Line, which crosses the bridge, which, as you mentioned as well, was opened in 2004. According to Arcaseek.ie, the Dublin and Wicklow Railway Company had, of course, built that, as we mentioned as well, from the Braid Dundrum part of the line. They obtained the other part of the line from an existing railway company and in 1854 you had the opening date for this new line. Dundrum was going to be the first stop for the train until you had Ranla and the Milltown stations that were built but the bridge beyond Milltown station became to be known locally as Nine Arches. This is partly because it had a nine arch stone viaduct but also because it was deemed such an engineering feat that it was instantly recognisable by this title. Engineers at the time, as you can imagine, were very proud of their achievement. And today the bridge is still in use, as we said, carrying the Lewis over the River Dodder. But comparison views of the bridge, whether that be people who were sketching it even in the late 19th century, and of course, old photographs of the ages show how virtually none the bridge has changed, but just what's crossing it, the actual trains, certainly have. Interestingly enough, actually, the Dundrum Railway Station is Victorian in its character, and it has protected structure status. William Dargan, who was the chairman of the Dublin and Wicklow Railway, I know Evan, you mentioned him a lot in the Dorky episode, designed Dundrum Station. And when they were constructing the Lewis Line, they actually used this, uh, they used the Dundrum Station as a construction office. But, of course, if you're heading over, so we're heading near the Dropping Well pub, that's where we're heading over towards Milltown, we're mm. going to have a little view over the Dodder, and, well, something else might just catch your eye, not a, not a passing Lewis. Yeah, not a Lewis necessarily. It's something uh, a little bit different. So certainly one of the more eye-catching or peculiar sights that you're likely to see along the course of the Dodder can be found just as you're crossing over Classen's Bridge. So next time you do, if you look over the edge, you will probably spot a bronze life-sized statue of a rhino stuck on a plinth and bang in the middle of the river course. So... The rhino, it has many nicknames. The pub located beside the bridge, the Dropping Well, have affectionately nicknamed him Woody. Uh, For others, he became known as the Plotter on the Dodder, the Milltown Muddler, uh, the Dodder Spike. Uh, Indeed, some locals were believed to have dubbed him Rhino O'Neill after the famous actor Ryan. For many, though, he is simply known as the Rhino on the Dodder. 
So he is cast entirely in bronze and is believed to have been filled full of cement on the inside to prevent him, of course, being washed away in any flood water. But as well as that, he is incredibly lifelike. Each crease in the skin contains intricate detail, giving him a remarkably realistic, lifelike appearance. So much so that you'd almost believe that he had just escaped from Dublin Zoo. I say it's some sight coming across this rhino when you're looking down from the bridge. Just a tad surprising. I suppose if you were ready to hear some information, maybe that Evan and I come across a revelation about the artist, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait a bit longer. Because this piece and this location, why it was even chosen here by the sculpture, we still have absolutely no idea. And that's because the full story remains a mystery. It was back in the early months of 2002 when the rhino was first spotted in the river, having been apparently installed under the cover of darkness at night. And despite causing a considerable amount of comment at the time of its installation, no one has ever come forward to accept responsibility for the piece, nor has any artist or installer ever been identified. I think some people think that the Dropping Well pub has something to do with it. They've distanced themselves from any links to the sculpture. Almost kind of like Lady Doth Protest Too Much kind of stance though. And although they did hold a high profile competition to find the rhino a name soon after its arrival, they've also kept a close eye on its welfare ever since appearing, particularly during the floods of 2002, when it was feared that the statue had been sunk without a trace. But thankfully for all concerned, the rhino is clearly made out of tough stuff and is still standing proud on its plinth to this day. It has ridden out the full force of any floods from the daughter since, and it certainly stands as one of the weirder and more left-field sculptures that you'll find knocking around Dublin to this day. But even as recently as January 2021, it was still being uh, tweeted by Love in Dublin and Dublin Live. So it's rehashes every couple of months, every couple of years, people remember the rhinos there and splash it all over Twitter. So yeah, you can still go. Yeah, it's very uh, Twitter, Instagram friendly, I would say. So not only, of course, holding competitions to go and find a name, I, th- I still think Rhino Neal is my favourite of them all. The Dropmail pub, of course, also staking its claim into the history of the area and also displaying connections to historical figures too. Yeah, indeed. Uh, one such figure who would have not only used the Dropping Well pub as a place to call into, but also the nearby tramline, back in the 1920s would have been one Kevin O'Higgins, the Minister for Justice and Home Affairs in the early Cumann na governments. Indeed, he has a connection with the Dropping Well pub. According to a wall-mounted display in the pub, inspiration for the Intoxicating Liquor Act derived from the teetotal minister's visit to this popular drinking establishment in 1926, where he allegedly observed ordinary working men spending far too much time and far too much money on drink, and thereby depriving their families of much-needed income for the household. So this act, which became law, a year later, in 1927, obliged public houses to close for one hour during each weekday, usually known as the Holy Hour, and also on Saturday. Uh, It eventually disappeared from the statute books in 1988, however the instigator of the act would never actually live to see it in action. So this law may have made O'Higgins persona non grata amongst many publicans at the time. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it was nothing actually compared to the anger reserved for him 
amongst Republicans, who had never forgot and never forgave his conduct during the Civil War, when he personally ordered the execution of 77 Republican prisoners, including the likes of Liam Mellows, Erskine Childers, and Rory O'Connor, who had been the best man at O'Higgins' wedding. The Come Here To Me blog actually gives a very good account of O'Higgins' assassination, which occurred just before midday on Sunday the 10th of July 1927, as he walked from his home, Dunham's house, on Cross Avenue, to the Church of the Assumption on Booterstown Avenue. Uh, as he approached the junction of Booterstown and Cross Avenue, a man stepped out of a parked motor car and fired at point-blank range. As O'Higgins collapsed on the other side of the road, two men came from the rear of the car and fired down on him as he laid on the ground. Jesus. The men then leaped into the car and drove off. So, yeah, pretty pretty gruesome uh, moment uh, in the early history of the new state. In fact, the three anti-treaty IRA mem men who killed him, Archie Doyle, Bill Gannon and Ta Tim Coughlin, apparently only saw him by chance. Gannon uh, later recalled that upon seeing him, we were just, quote, taken over and incensed with rage and hatred. The motor car which they used was believed to have been stolen from one Captain McDonnell the night before, and then after the shooting, the car itself was found abandoned at Richmond Avenue in Milltown itself. O'Higgins, who was a weekly mass-goer, was usually accompanied by his wife or PJ Hogan, the Minister for Agriculture, his closest friend, but this week in question, however, he was escorted by Detective O'Grady. Uh, when the two men were between their house and Booterstown Avenue, O'Higgins seemingly sent the detective back to collect something that he had forgotten from the house. It was also believed that the Garda escort was in fact sent to Black Rock to buy some cigarettes. O'Higgins himself was found lying by a lamppost outside the gates of the house San Suki, which directly faces up Cross Avenue by locals on their way to Mass, who had heard the shots. Apparently, local resident Owen McNeil, who we've mentioned in previous episodes, was one of the first people to reach the dying man, and he was actually moved to a house and miraculously lingered on for another five hours before eventually passing away, so his death was seen as probably one of the last episodes of a particularly bitter post-Civil War period, and is one which still generates fierce controversy even to this day. Up until now, it's been a relatively easy enough to commemorate certain events, but these sort of events coming up will be a little bit more difficult. Even with O'Higgins, when they're trying to mark out even the assassination spot, there's been a lot of pushback. Some monuments get damaged even as soon as they go up, so it's uh, very difficult to know what to do. But I guess stories like this still need to be remembered in mm -hmm. order for us to all move forward, I guess. Absolutely, and a great discussion coming out of it, which I'm sure we'll be, we'll be reading and, and discussing ourselves as the year goes on. But I think on that note, and as we head into the start of, a, of 2022, but the end of season two of Dublin Stark South, <laughs> I just want to say thank you so, so much again, Evan, for joining me on the show. You've been a gem as per. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on, not only this episode, but all the other ones before. It has been great experience absolutely and we have been delighted to hear you back again and again and again you are brilliant thank you so so much thank you 
Also, of course, a big thank you to everybody who's listened to every single episode of the show so far. 24 of them, in fact, Evan. And uh, <laughs> there just happens lot, to be... <laughs> there's a lot to go through anyway, a lot of listening back. If <laughs> Yeah, it just happens to kind of coincide, I suppose, with the with the very start of 2022. So hopefully, uh, you don't know what's, what's ahead, but for the moment, it's the very, very end of season two and the very, very end of the Milltown episode. And of course, if you need any of the reading lists or any of the shows, please let me know. The social media which you can find us on is the same as ever at Dublin's Historic on Twitter at L History on Instagram and on Facebook at at Dublin's Historic South you can also email us at Dublin's Historic South at Outlook.com I can send out any questions you have to Evan as well thank you also as well to Dublin South FM who hosts this show and of course the podcast will be available on Friday after this show has come out thank you very very much and enjoy the rest of 2022